Well, we're continuing our uh, Nuts and Bolts series, um, three weeks in to it, and uh, I get to talk about the church again. I love talking about the church. So the last time uh, that you heard from me, we talked about um, how the church was formed, and that from the beginning of creation, God began calling people into relationship with Him, and it started with two people. Uh, and then a family, and then a nation, and then uh, Jew and Gentile uh, as the New Testament church was birthed. Uh, but it's been a pattern from the beginning that, that God has called people into relationship with Him, that He has marked off that people and, and in some way defined uh, who the people are that belong to Him. And it is a great privilege that we get to be uh, a part of the church. Uh, we know that the church is going to make it to the end because the Bible tells us, even in all of its flaws, uh, that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. So the church is, is, is an endeavor uh, that is guaranteed success uh, because of who the father of the church is. And so it's not going to fail. And you and I uh, get to be a part of something that is not going to fail. I remember... Several years back, I was uh, talking to a friend who started a business, and he told me one day, he's like, oh, I can't wait till I get to be five years into business. And I, and I said, well, why is that? And he says, well, I read a statistic that after five years, if a business makes it five years, that it's not going to fail. And I don't think that's a true statistic. <laughs> but, but, but in his mind, it's like, okay, if I can just kind of get to this point, like my endeavor will be successful. Well, the church uh, has been uh, around for a long, long time. And, and it is guaranteed not to fail. Uh, even being full of a bunch of flawed people uh, that don't always get along and don't always get things right, the church is going to make it until the end. We also talked about how God calls a people, that He doesn't call this people to be just kind of a group of individuals, but He calls people kind of as a collective, right? That there's this corporate nature to the church. Um, I think church has done people a disservice in kind of recent decades of trying to foster this idea of an individualistic Christianity and that the church is a product to be consumed. Um, yes, we do come and there are things that we consume. We consume the Word and we consume fellowship and those kinds of things, but the church is not entirely a consumeristic endeavor uh, on your part or my part. Uh, there's, there's a collective that we're here uh, to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, uh, to glorify God together, right? Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about togetherness. The Bible reminds us that we were one time a people without belonging, but because of our union in Christ, that we are now a people that belong. We, we are not a people anymore that don't have a belonging to someone or something, um, and God has designed the church that we would make a collective effort to build one another up, to encourage one another, uh, to, in our togetherness, declare His glory and His goodness throughout the world. Right? The church has, has a purpose. We defined the church the last time I got to preach on this as a people who have been chosen by God, who have been purchased by Christ and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. People have been chosen by God, purchased by Jesus Christ, and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. Today we're going to talk about 
how the church is organized. Last time it was how the church was formed. Today it's how the church is organized. And so this is, we're going to get into some just kind of practical things about the structure of our church and, and kind of the method to the madness, so to speak, and, and why, why we are structured or organized uh, the way that we're organized. But before we get into that, I want to do just a little more setup here. Jesus told us in John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if you just think about what, what it is to be a disciple of Christ, to, to be a part of the church, and, and we, we would not make a distinction. Some people would make a distinction that like there are Christians, and then there are disciples. We wouldn't make that distinction. We would say that, that if you are a Christian, you're a disciple. And, and if you're a disciple of Christ, then you are a Christian. They're, they're one and the same thing. Um, and, and part of the purpose that God has given the church is to go, therefore, into all of the world and make disciples. And Pastor David's preaching on that track here over the summer, um, so I'm not going to belabor that today. But, but it is um, the purpose of the church here on earth that we would all uh, endeavor to grow in our discipleship uh, and that we would go and make disciples. In other words, that we would go out into the world, display and declare God's goodness and His glory, uh, throughout the world, calling people into the community, the church, um, and making disciples. In other words, teaching people to follow Christ. That's all a disciple is, someone who's being taught to follow Christ, uh, and we do that together. It's our part of our collective effort, okay? We don't gather here on Sundays to tell you uh, how to be a better Christian, necessarily. We don't gather here on Sundays to tell you how much harder you need to try to be better, um, some churches do that, and you know, our conviction is that, that that's a burdensome kind of a faith. If every week uh, we're loading rocks in your backpack to tell you how short you fall and how much better you need to do, right? That, that's not Christianity. Christianity, the message of Christianity is here's what Christ has done for us. He's done for us things that we could and would never do for ourselves, and that's the gospel that we preach. Uh, and we come here and we take that in, and, and yes, we, we do learn uh, how to live out our faith, hopefully, as we gather here Sunday after Sunday. Um, but we feel like if we're, if we're preaching the true gospel and preaching a right gospel, that it fosters among all of us uh, a gladness to engage in obedience to Christ, right? We, we, can, we can approach our relationship with Christ out of delight because of who He is and what He's done for us, and that inspires us and spurs us on to live the way that he's called us to live or we can preach in such a way where uh, we, we tell you that this is your duty in order to make it to heaven you got to check these things off your list right that, that that's not how we preach here and you, you know that if you've been here for any amount of time all of that to, to kind of circle back around that, that the, the way that the world will know who the disciples of christ are is not how good of a life you live it's not how moral you are it's not how many things that you check off your list in the Bible. The thing that's going to define the disciples of Christ is how Christians love each other if what we just read in the Gospel of John is true. And I'm not questioning if it's true. I'm just saying that if, if it is true, then our love for one another, the love that we have for one another in the church is going to show the world who the Christians are because we live entirely differently if you kind of just look around the room, and I've said this before, that not many of us would probably cross paths in life if not for the church, 
right? We all have kind of different affinities in life, different hobbies, different backgrounds, different kind of social statuses, and, and we, we may not cross paths except that God has called us all here into the church together. One of my closest friends in the world, we've talked about many times that we might not be that close of friends if not for Christ. Just because we grew up differently and, and have different interests in life and those kinds of things, but because of Christ, those things come together. Um, and, and so think about that. You cannot have love for other disciples of Christ if you're never around disciples of Christ. <laughs> There's an implication here that that the world will know who the disciples of Christ are by the way they love one another. It's that there's, there's a togetherness among the disciples of Christ. You have to have a context and opportunity for this love to be displayed. And it's God's plan that the display of this love is going to show the world who the followers of Christ are. Proverbs 18.1, the writer of Proverbs says that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. One of the things that has been interesting to me about South County in particular, um, I, I, I've lived here for eight and a half years now, and, and we moved uh, not far away, another, another town, Prineville, some of you might know, and um, you know, I grew up there. Uh, my folks grew up there. My, my grandparents, my great-grandparents lived there. And people like me in that community are not uncommon where, you know, you have several generations of family that have been from there. And so kind of, there's this inherent sense of community within the town because of that. Um, you know, my closest friend I talked about, you know, his, his parents went to school with my parents. Like, that's not uncommon where we came from. And, and this sense of community kind of filters its way into the church in a good way. When I moved down here, I noticed pretty quickly, I mean, within the first six months of living here, uh, nobody's from here. I mean, if I asked you to raise your hand here, if you're from Lapine, I, I don't think any hands would go up. Nobody's from here. Everybody's from somewhere else. And I noticed it just because of what I was used to my whole life. Um, it, was, it was very odd to me. Um, you know, maybe it's more common than I think, but just because of where I came from, I, I just noticed it. And I began to realize that there's kind of this inherent lack of a sense of community here, I think, because of that. And, and then as I began to get to know people and get to know the community more, I realized, like, that there's a value. Like, people move here to isolate. Whether you have a nice house on the river and it's your retirement home uh, or you live in a camper in the woods, kind of, kind of every end of the, of the social spectrum and everything in between, there's a value of isolation here in this community. Uh, very, you may not notice it. I don't know. Maybe you came here to be left alone, but, but I've, I noticed it. And, and that has crept its way into the church in a in, in not very good way. Right? And, and so we have to work at that. We have to fight that uh, because people, people they just want to be left alone. And, and I get it to a point. But the Bible tells us that anyone who isolates himself he breaks out against all sound judgment. We're, we're not meant to isolate. We're not meant to be alone. We're, we're meant to live in community. God has created us for that. And, and you can make the argument that maybe you're an introvert, not an extrovert, you know, whatever. God has wired us to not be isolated. He's wired us that way. And, and when we, we go against the way that God has created us, we're, we're fighting a battle that we're not going to win, and it's not sound. 
The scripture I referenced the last time that I talked about the church, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, reminds us that you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So again, communal language here, collective language. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received God's mercy. And there's a lot going on there, and I unpacked that last time, so I'm not going to belabor this one today. But it reminds us that, that we're a people for God's own possession. And that we're given a purpose to declare the excellencies of who He is because we once didn't belong to Him and now we belong to Him. And that's a big deal. It's everything. And the context for all of this to play out is is within the church. The context where we love one another is within the church. When I say the church, I don't mean just what's happening here on Sunday, more on that in a minute. But but the church is a people, remember? We talked about that last time. Not, Not a building or not a place. The church is a people, and and so there's the context for all of this to play out. So given all of that, we we organize ourselves in a certain manner because all of this is true. And so I think the Bible would make an argument that there is defined membership. This is the first area in which we organize ourselves, that there's a defined membership in the church. Again, the, the church is people who have been chosen by God and purchased by Christ. So, so, that, so there's a definition there. Not, not everybody has been chosen by God and purchased by Christ. Now, what Christ did on the cross is sufficient for everybody. Sufficient for everybody, but, but we just know that not everybody believes. Not everybody is a part of the church. Not everybody has submitted their life to Christ. So, the, so there, there's, a, there's a defined marker of those who belong to Christ. In the Old Testament, the, de, the defined marker of God's people was circumcision. And the law and, and rituals, the things that they did, defined who belonged to Christ. The New Testament church, the marker, the definition of those who belong to Christ is disciples who love one another well. That's how we know who the church is. And again, the church consists of people from varying backgrounds, all of whom have been born again, all of whom are in covenant relationship with God and with other Christians in order to serve, to encourage, and to edify one another. Do you think about that when when you come to the gatherings of the church? Do you think about what am I going to get out of it today? Or do you think about what can I contribute today in the way that I serve and encourage and build up and edify one another? And if you think about the former over the latter, I would encourage you to think about when any time that you come to the church gathering to think about what can I do for somebody? How can I contribute? How can I encourage? How can I build up somebody? One of the reasons that, that we do praise and prayer is so that, that we can be aware of the things that are going on in one another's lives, but that we can pray for one another. Isn't it encouraging when you know that your, your church uh, body is praying for whatever it is that's going on in your life? It's encouraging. Absolutely. And, and even more so, if somebody might call you during the week or send you a text saying, hey, I'm still praying for the thing, whatever it is. Or, hey, just checking in, want to see how you're doing. Those are super encouraging. They take a little effort on our part to do things like that. 
This is part of disciples loving one another well and in a way that, that, that shows the world those who belong to Christ. So again, the members of the church consist of people from varying backgrounds who have been born again, have made a covenant to serve, encourage, and edify one another, and have demonstrated, when we get down to the level of the local church, a commitment to our mission, vision, beliefs, and values. And so we have kind of these iterations of the church. So we have the local church, which is our little church right here. Uh, we have the global church, which is the church all around the world, or the universal church. Right? You have the church throughout time and history, like we belong to something bigger than just what's here and now, than what we can see and that's in front of us. Right? We belong to an institution that has been around for a long, long time and will be around uh, for a long, long time as well. Right? We have the visible church, like churches that you can see. We have the invisible church or maybe the underground church. Right? There's parts of the world where you know, if you go public with this thing, you put your life in danger. And so, you know, you might have people that meet in basements or, or, you know, places that are not public because of where they live. And that is a reality in our world today. That does happen. That's not just something that happened a long time ago, right? There are churches that are underground uh, in our world. I, I used to know some people, friends of our family, uh, friends of my parents, who uh, for many years, I think 20 some odd years, were uh, underground missionaries to China. And they couldn't really be public about their faith, and they had to smuggle Bibles. And, and you know, this was long before the days of email existed, so when you had to write them a letter, uh, you'd have to send the letter to somebody else. They had a, like a clearinghouse where they would open your letter and read it to make sure that there wasn't anything in the letter that would get them in trouble. And then they would edit your letter uh, and t- take out anything that would be problematic before they sent it on to China. Underground. Uh, and they did it for, for many years. And so, so again, the church is just, it's much bigger and it's much more than what you see here. But, but kind of where I'm going today and, and in the next uh, sermon that I get to preach on the church is going to be about kind of the local church. So our, our fellowship here, the door here in Sun River and in Lapine, okay? And, and so um, being part of the local church is demonstrating a commitment to the mission, the vision, the values, and the beliefs of that local church. And each member, the Bible would tell us, plays a vital role in the church. Everybody has something to contribute. God, God gifts all of us. There, there are a few passages in the Bible that talk about spiritual gifts and things like that. And uh, because those lists are not the same, I don't believe that, that they're necessarily exhaustive lists to say here are all of the possible gifts. Um, God has just wired us in a way that we can contribute to the church in some way. Um, you can give of your time, of your resources, you can encourage, you can build up, you can serve. Anything that you can do to contribute to the church, I, I would say, is a spiritual gift. Whatever, picking up rocks before lunch next week might be a spiritual gift because it contributes to the function of the church. Praying for one another contributes to the function of the church, right? We can do that. And the Bible uses some imagery when it talks about the church, um, one image that, that Paul uses is that we're like a body, like a physical body with many kind of moving parts to the body, right? Every part of our body plays a vital role. If you have an accident and you get a finger lopped off, it changes the way that your body functions in some way, right? That might be a minor thing. Maybe if you get an arm or a leg, that, that's a bigger deal, but but any time that, that a, a part of your physical body is affected, your whole body is affected in some manner, right? Uh, 
And Paul uses the image of the body, telling us the church is a body with many members. And he even talks about that, like, not everybody, you know, can be a big toe, or not everybody can be an elbow, or not everybody can be a nose. Everybody kind of plays a role uh, in the body. And, And God has designed us all to function together. The Bible also uses the imagery of the church as sheep of a flock. And there's a lot we can be said about sheep, and I can make some jokes about sheep, and I'm not going to do that today, but, but sheep need a shepherd, right? They need to be guided, and they need to be protected. And, and the Bible uses that imagery of the church that we're sheep of a flock. The Bible uses the image of the church as living stones. That's a little more of an abstract concept, living stones. So if you think about a wall and building block walls or stone walls, right? When I was a kid, my parents bought a property uh, on a reservoir. The, the dam had broke, and, and there were many years where the reservoir didn't full, fill up, and so property was kind of cheap, and so they bought property, and they built a house. And my summers from eighth grade through high school were spent going down into the lake bottom and loading up my dad's truck with whatever flat rock I could find in the lake bottom so that we could build fences around the house with this flat rock. And then somehow, total side note, but it was the year I graduated high school and moved out of the house. Well, all of a sudden they fixed the dam and then they started filling up the lake again and I, like, I never got to enjoy the lake. I hated building walls with these flat stones, but those walls are still there today. Right? This, this was a little bit ago and those walls are still standing uh, because of just the care that went into you know, putting rock on top of rock on top of rock on top of rock. And the Bible says that as the church that we're living stones. Again, abstract kind of an image, but but it says something, right? There's stability with stones. These walls uh, bring a level of protection to the property, right? They, They add to the aesthetic of the property. They look cool, right? So living stones. And... More than that, the imagery that the Bible uses of the church is that of family. Right? Not, not all of you have family that live close by. Like I said, nobody's from here, right? Almost nobody's from here. And so you may not have family that lives down the road, but, but you have, as being a part of the church, a family that isn't necessarily your blood family, right? I know, I've known many people over the years in the church even that are estranged from their family for various reasons that have found a family within the church. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a very beautiful thing. 1 Corinthians 2.12, For just as the body is one and has many members, all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So so there's a oneness. Again, like, if your finger just decides to fall off of your body and go do its own thing, it's not going to last, right? Anytime any part of your body becomes detached from the body, it, like it's got a clock that's ticking, its days are numbered, right? It's not going to survive, and it's kind of a ridiculous notion to think that any part of your body could detach from the body and, and survive, let alone thrive. And so Paul is using this imagery very... Uh, intentionally to let us know that, that if you're a Lone Ranger Christian, you're, you're like a finger that is detached from the body. And it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well for you. You're not going to survive. 
Romans 12, 4-5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Think about that. You belong to me and I belong to you as members of the church. We, we, we have ownership of one another if what Paul said to the Romans is true. That's a big deal. They don't tell you that at the Elks Club or the Moose Lodge or the Kiwanis or the Rotary or whatever other kind of clubs or organizations might. They, they don't tell you that you belong to one another. The Bible tells us that as members of the church, that, that we are members of one another and, th- and this connectedness is intentional on God's part. So when I say that the church has a defined membership, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about necessarily signing your name on a piece of paper or anything like that. Um, that that's another uh, talk for another time. But, but when the Bible defines the membership of the church, th- this is what we're talking about, that we have a defined membership in that the members of the church are those who are followers of Christ uh, in a universal sense, but in a local sense, the members of the church are those who follow Christ and have subscribed to the mission, vision, values, and beliefs of a particular local church and have committed themselves to that church, to that group of people, and that group of people have committed themselves to one another. Does that make sense? The church has defined membership. Secondly, the church is organized under qualified leadership. So the church is structured under the biblical offices of elders and deacons. The Bible depicts elders as those who faithfully and willingly oversee the spiritual needs of a local fellowship while shepherding the flock and guarding doctrine. The Bible depicts deacons as those who willingly and diligently serve the practical and physical needs of a local church. And these offices are made up of a plurality of servant leaders who meet biblical qualifications to hold such office. Now, I think we've borrowed from the business world in the church. Um, I've been to churches before who have had parking lot pastors, which means there's someone out directing traffic, but they call them the parking lot pastor. Not really a pastoral role if you ask me, but I've seen it. I've been to a church that had a coffee pastor. This was a, a large church. And they had you know, a cafe area, and so that, like, the person in charge of the cafe was the coffee pastor. Again, not really a pastoral role if you ask me, but I've seen that. Um, some churches have administrative pastors, which really would be to say like the office manager. Maybe a needed function, but maybe not necessarily a pastoral role, I don't think. Uh, Some churches, uh, especially larger churches uh, with big staff, might have an executive pastor, which could be kind of the the pastor's pastor, like the pastor to the pastors. That might be the executive pastor in in some churches. There are all these roles, but the Bible keeps it pretty simple. The the Bible really has kind of three roles in the church, members, elders, and deacons, and everybody's a member, right? The elders and deacons are members first and foremost, just like everybody else. And then among those members, the Bible has two offices of elders and deacons. And we don't have time today to, to unpack all of the, the biblical qualifications. You know, that would be maybe another sermon for another time. But I do want to call our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses. So this is 
the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and we would say overseer, elder, pastor, bishop, shepherd, all, all same thing, right? Those words throughout the Bible. So if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, that he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. (laughs) Titus 1, 5 to 9, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, the children and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And finally, First Peter 5, 1-5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with all humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so just kind of a quick read of the qualifications of elders. You see that there's, there's not a lot of skill set involved there. There was nothing that we read that says, you know, must be a CEO or must have a certain level of education uh, or background or things like that. These were, by and large, character, qualifications of the character of a man. The one skill that maybe sets the elder apart from the deacon is the ability to teach that that was called out in Timothy. But but these are largely character-driven qualifications that the Bible says these are the men that need to lead the local church. And so with these two offices of leadership, and, and, and we see, we'll see here in a minute, I'm going to read some deacon qualifications, and you'll see that, that there's a lot of similarities, uh, but we would not necessarily subscribe to the thought that, that being a deacon is a stepping stone to being an elder. That, that happens in some cases, right? But, but it's not necessarily the order that God set it up, that you, that you start with one and, and kind of move up, up the chain to the other. It's not that. God has given two different offices to the church, one, one office, a group of elders, to oversee the spiritual needs of a church, and one office in deacons to oversee the practical needs of the church, and both are needed. And it's, and it's part of the giftedness that God gives to serve, to edify, to encourage, and to build up the church. Can, can you imagine a church that didn't have that? Could you imagine a church that didn't have even one of the offices, maybe spiritual oversight, but not practical, or practical, but not spiritual, let alone a church that didn't have either. 
right? It wouldn't be much of a church uh, in that way. Again, the Bible uses the term pastor or shepherd, kind of the same, same word, elder, overseer, uh, interchangeably. We, we would not make a distinction to say that we have you know, pastors and elders. A lot of churches do that. Uh, and in churches that do that, oftentimes you know, the pastor or pastors are maybe the ones who, who do pulpit ministry and the elders are kind of more of a, like a, an advisory board or a financial board. Maybe it's you know, guys with a business background that can help kind of run the organization of the church. Um, a lot of churches make those distinctions. We don't make those distinctions here. So much of how the Bible teaches Christians to live is kind of counterintuitive to us, right? Even the gathering of the church is kind of counterintuitive because, again, not a lot of us might cross paths in life except for something like this. And so there's this kind of counterintuitiveness to how the Bible calls us to live. There's a countercultural way that the Bible calls us to live. And I just want to point out that, that of all of these things that we just read for the qualifications of elders, every single one of those things is required of every Christian. Every, every single one, with the exception, every Christian isn't required to have the ability to teach. Right? But, but every Christian is required to be sober-minded, and every Christian is called to have a good reputation with outsiders and all these other things that we read. So, so there are kind of the one unique qualification for the elder is that they're able to teach. That's not to say that every Christian can't or shouldn't teach. It's just a unique qualification. But everything we read about elders and everything we're going to read here in a minute about deacons, uh, the Bible puts on every Christian, right? Think about that. Running the church is not like running a business. And again, we, we've borrowed from the business world, I think, in the local church uh, in the way that we do things. And, and maybe there are some things that kind of carry over because there is a sense in which the church is an, like an entity, an organization. We file paperwork with the state so that we have a business entity that exists, right? And, and, and we bring in income, you know, you all give to the church, right? And so, so we have obligations there uh, to make sure that things are above board and, and all of this. So, so there is a sense in which, like, there is kind of a business aspect. And we have to be smart and wise about it. We have to be accountable about it. But at the end of the day, the church is not a business. And it's not to be run like a business. Pastors are not necessarily supposed to be CEOs. There, there's a term out there called pastorpreneur, and, and especially you see maybe in some kind of large mega churches where, um, you know, the pastor who's the personality is also kind of an entrepreneurial kind of a person and has the ability to draw a crowd. Um, that's not the picture that the Bible gives of the local church. <clears throat> the model that we see established in the New Testament is a plurality of elders who oversee a local church. So, so more than one. Um, we, this, is, this is part of kind of how our church might be a little bit counter-cultural because what, what would be cultural um, would be to have maybe kind of a hierarchy with you know, a pastor who sits at the top of the hierarchy and everybody's kind of under the pastor and the pastor is the personality attached to the church. And uh, we just don't have that conviction here at the door. Um, you know, we, we, we don't want the church to be driven on a personality. And, and our thought is that um, you know, as, as much as I know you all love us as pastors, if something were to happen to one of us, the church would go on. And we're happy that the church would go on because we've worked hard to make sure that's not built around a person or a personality. And, and I think we pretty clearly see in the Bible 
um, plurality of elders. Paul would go establish elders in every place that he went. Not one, but he would establish elders everywhere that he went. The benefit of a plurality of elders is that um, you know, the joke of our podcast, One Decent Pastor, is that the three of us make one decent pastor. And, and we joke about that, but, but we believe that to be true, that, that we all bring kind of different gifts and abilities to the table, that, that you get more, you get more out of a plurality of elders than if you had one person who's expected to be all and do all, right? And so we have a very strong conviction that the Bible teaches that the church should be led by a plurality of elders, the imagery used in the Bible when it describes elders is that of shepherds. Now, I didn't grow up around sheep. I, didn't, I grew up in a rural community, but I didn't farm anything or raise animals or anything like that. So this is a little out of my depth, but I can imagine, like I've never gone out to uh, anybody's farm or ranch and seen anybody get mad at the animals, right? The animals are just like they need help and they need direction, they need to be fed and they need to be cared for. And everybody I know that's ever raised, you know, livestock or big animals, they do it because they, they enjoy doing it. They do so gladly, they do so willingly. And this is the imagery that the Bible uses of those that would lead the church. Raising animals is messy. Not always fun. Sometimes it's a lot of work, right? But they do it gladly. And the role of the elders in this is to protect the flock, to feed the flock, to lead, lead the flock, and to care for the flock. And I can tell you um, that your pastors take that role very seriously. Very seriously. The shepherding gets done as a team, and you benefit, the church benefits from that with better and more thorough care. As we think about deacons, a couple scriptures on deacons, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul starts out by addressing them. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible has a little bit more to say about elders than it does about deacons. The reason I read this scripture is that Paul, in this greeting to the church at Philippi, seems to be using deacons as a title. There's a Greek word, diakonos. They'll throw Greek around a lot, but the Greek word diakonos is a word that simply means servant. In some instances, it, it's not necessarily a title, but in Paul's greeting to the church at Philippi, it seems to be as he's greeting the overseers and the deacons or greeting the elders and the deacons that he's using it uh, as a title for those who are occupying an office. First Timothy, we read the qualifications of elders in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Well, picking up in verse 8 to 13, it has this to say about deacons. Deacons, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. 
For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Very similar to the other list that we read about elders minus the ability to teach, right? And so the Bible, again, it just, it just simplifies it. The Bible doesn't tell you coffee pastor, parking lot pastor, administrative pastor, executive pastor. It says elders and deacons, right? And it gives us very simple lists of qualifications uh, for both offices. We're so thankful uh, for our deacons here in Lapine. Um, you guys are awesome. <laughs> you guys make it a joy to be a pastor. You really do. Um, you guys handle things that need to be handled. You, you bring us in the loop when we need to be brought in the loop, but, but we have a trust for you guys in what you do because you're serving in your roles as deacons exceptionally well. And it makes our job as pastors a lot easier. Right? We see in Acts chapter 6 where um, some practical needs weren't being met. And they said, let's, let's pick from amongst yourselves a handful of guys that can serve as deacons so that the pastors can devote themselves to prayer and the Word. And we absolutely, I know I speak for the other two guys when I say that we absolutely feel that we can devote our time to prayer and the Word because of what the deacons do, because of what you guys do. Um, Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for affording us the opportunity to be committed to prayer and the Word. And that's not to say that as pastors that, that, that we're not involved in the practical things or that we turn a blind eye to it, far, far from it. But, but we know that we have a group of guys that are going to handle those things as they arise. And it makes our jobs easier. It makes our jobs easier. And so um, we are organized with defined membership. We're organized under qualified leadership as defined by the Bible. And then lastly, and I'm actually going to talk about this more next time, so we're just going to do a flyby on this today, uh, but we are organized with intentional gathering. We, we do what we do on purpose, so the regular gatherings of the church include corporate gatherings like this, kind of where all hands on deck, um, as well as smaller groups, and so we've got you know, various things that happen throughout the week. Uh, Bible studies or home groups or work parties, right? Those are gatherings of the church. They happen throughout the week. And our gatherings, especially the Sunday morning corporate gathering, consists of Christ-centered preaching. Uh, If we ever preach in a way that is not Christ-centered, you have permission to call us out on that, right? It's a value of ours. Christ-centered preaching. Uh, In our corporate gathering, we observe the sacraments, communion, and baptism. Uh, We engage in prayer, and and we have the fellowship of all believers. So again, I'm going to talk about this more my next go-around, so that's all I'm going to say about that today. Our smaller groups, they're more specifically designed um, to foster relationship, to foster discipleship. Those things certainly happen on Sunday morning, but not to the degree that they happen in small groups, not to the degree that they even happen on work days or camping trips or whatever. And so we always want to have things, you know, where where men can get together, where women can get together, where youth can get together. Um, We we don't want to fully segregate. I think a lot of churches sometimes kind of segregate, you know, got only men's things and women's things and youth things and and like they never come together. We don't want to do that. Um, You know, we want to have some integration in what we do. We value that. 
But there's also value when guys can get together and talk about guy things. And there's value when women can get together and talk about women's things. There's value when discipleship can be focused towards particular groups like teenagers. right? And so those things are, are valuable. And I just want to say for today that Sunday mornings are not the totality of the church. It's the biggest thing that we do, the thing that the most people come to. But Sunday morning is not the totality of the church. And if you're only coming to Sunday mornings, you're missing out. You're shortchanging yourself if you think that Sunday mornings is the totality of the church. And so I would encourage any of you that if if it's the only thing that you're involved in to consider all that we've talked about and God's design for the church and, and what we had to say about isolation and our need for one another and our collectiveness and all of these things and consider what you're missing out on by not being a part of more. Now, I say that realizing like everybody's got lives and we've got jobs and things to do and everybody can't come to everything. We get it, right? Everybody can't come to everything. We completely understand, completely get that. But don't miss out on what God has given you for your flourish, flourishment. God has given you and I as Christians, the church, so that we would flourish in life and flourish in our relationship with Him and flourish in our relationship with one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25 reminds us, and it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church has been important from the beginning, but, but as the day draws near, as the end of all things draw near, the church is more and more important and vital in our lives. And so don't neglect what God has given you for your good. The church is organized with a defined membership, qualified leadership, and intentional gathering. And I'll close with this statement about gospel-centered community. Gospel-centered community is marked by a local fellowship of believers who, because of their union with Christ, have joined together as committed members of one another. Being of the same mind of Christ, members of a local church live for the good of one another and the glory of God, displaying the nature of Jesus for the world to see. Let me read that again. Gospel-centered community is marked by a local fellowship of believers who, because of their union with Christ, have joined together as committed members of one another, being of the same mind as Christ. Members live for the good of one another and the glory of God, displaying the nature of Jesus for all of the world to see. Father, we're thankful this morning for the church. Thankful that you have given us the church as a good gift. Thankful that you have given us a context in which to live out our faith to a watching world. And thankful that the church is open to any and all who would come to you in repentance and in faith. And so I pray that you would help us uh, to value the church a little more today uh, than we did yesterday. Pray that you would help us to be a little more committed to the church today than we were yesterday. Pray that you would help us uh, as we endeavor in those things to love one another well, especially in the times when it's hard to do so. And in so doing, that you would help us to display the truth of the gospel to a watching world in such a way that it would draw people to you and that you would add to our number those who are coming to faith. 
And so, God, help us um, in these things. Help us in our love for the church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.